Welcome to the Born to Write podcast, dedicated to writers, authors, and the art of storytelling. Go behind the scenes where writers reveal their ups and downs and how they finally shared their stories with the world. Now, here is your host, Azul Tarones. Today's guest, David Cadaby, is a, is a really good friend. We became friends through our conversations online and then in phone conversations. What's incredible about him is that he had his first book that he released that went to the top 20 of all books on Amazon, which is almost impossible to do if you're a huge publisher. Designed for Hackers, Reverse Engineering Beauty, which is an incredible book. And the book that I really got attracted to was The Heart to Start and also a bunch of other short reads. He's an incredible writer. And I really appreciate the way that we connected. And this interview is about understanding how you can use your creativity to really grow and deepen the connection that you have to the world. This is David Cadaby. All right. Welcome, everyone. Today on Born to Write, we have an incredible writer who's going to share, David. David, you're going to pronounce your last name because I last time I tried to pronounce this, I messed it up. Okay, that's fine. Uh, my last name is uh, Cadavy, so David Cadavy. David Cadavy is here. We, you know, that's that's not as difficult as I made it sound. Really wait, glad actually, you're... I think you actually... Wait, 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 how did you say it? I did say it wrong, right? I don't know. What did you say? I don't remember, but it's Cadavy? Cadavy. Okay, yeah. You, okay. you had it. I thought well, you said cav- cavity. Oh, like, no, not like not, the thing not, in your tooth. Not quite like that. So we'll start again so we can get... I should have... Oh, I thought you were going to put that in the podcast. We could. It'll be fun. All right. Anyways, David, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. Let's talk about your journey as a writer, because so many writers start off as not writers. But did you start off knowing you had talent for writing? Like, No, not at all. absolutely not. I really did not like writing throughout school. And for some reason, I started voluntarily writing on my blog in 2004. I mean, I, I just didn't really think of it that much as writing. And then it just kind of accidentally happened as I wrote more things that I enjoyed writing about rather than whatever I had been assigned to write about in school. And the ball just kept rolling. And next thing I knew, I had a book deal. And, and now I've, I've got two books now. So yeah, that's a really... So you just casually walked into it. Now I have a book deal. <laughs> so let's back up. So I got very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Let's back up because people want to know this journey. So you didn't think of yourself much of a writer and you enjoyed writing, but not the things in school. How did you decide you wanted to do a blog and what was the topic of your blog? What was what was the focus and why did it matter to you that you had to write now or at the yeah, time? Yeah, good question. So I was reading all these blogs around 2004 or so. I was reading Seth Godin's blog and Douglas Bowman, who went on to be the head designer at Google and, and Twitter. And I was a designer myself. There was also like Jason Santamaria, a lot of these web design bloggers and such. And I'm sitting in my cubicle in Omaha, Nebraska, where I grew up mm. at a, an architecture firm. And I think it was one, one night after you know staying late, I'm like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but okay, let's just get this done. And I got on a blogger and I quickly just tried to make the blog as fast as I could to just not hold myself back and worry about how intimidated I was by how nice all the other blogs were and how mm. good their writing was and how they had this really nice, fancy design. And so I got on there and I wrote my first blog post. It's still up there. And it's basically me saying, I don't know why I'm doing this, but you know, sometimes I just get into perfection paralysis and I don't want that to happen. So I'm just going to jump in and, and barf this out. I don't know what I'm going to write about here, but I think it will probably be about web design and design and things like that. 
And I'm glad that I'm getting started. That was pretty much the post right there. And that got me started. And so I did write about web design because I was learning about web design. And so I, uh, at the time, was on Blogger. And so I figured out, like, well, I'm going to redesign my template. And so I would blog about what I redesigned my template in my template. Or I started doing a lot of reading back then. I started reading a lot of classics, which I think is another period when, I don't know, I kind of programmed myself to become a writer. I remember reading Pride and Prejudice and just my, my, my modus operandi or the way I would do it, would, I would go to a library. There'd be, the library would have these used book sales. And I would just buy any book that I had heard of. So I remember, distinctly remember reading Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. And it's like this kind of old English language. And you have to like kind of read every sentence two or three times to understand what's being said. And I remember feeling like my brain was just being re-architected. And I do remember thinking like, oh, this is an interesting feeling here. You know, maybe, maybe there's, I don't know, does that mean I'm a writer in some way? Mm. And so I would, I would, you know, I did blog about books I was reading as well, but web design book, books I was reading, it, it's always been and continues to be kind of my playground of exploration. Like the work that I produce is not so much a product as it is my own process. So David, that's interesting. So how much do you think being completely interested in what you're doing and the learning aspect have to do with like sparking that desire to write? For me, it was it was everything. I mean, I, I love to learn, but I really didn't like school. Uh, and I probably didn't even notice that I loved to learn so much because I disliked school so much. And so I do know like the first time that I remember writing coming easily to me was in college. I had uh, actually dropped an English composition course because, well, I was busy with other courses, but, but there, I remember the teacher said, okay, this is, you know, English 102 or 101 composition, write a paper about the Vietnam War. And it's 1997, 1998. I'm, you know, 18 some years. I don't know anything about the Vietnam War. Like, right. I knew nothing about it at that time. So like, that's a lot to ask, you know, it was like, both learn about this thing that you know nothing about, that you did not live during that time period, and write a paper. So I dropped that class, and then I ended up taking a summer session in my hometown. And I remember that teacher was like, write about, you know, your best friend or anything, anything you want, you know, just mm -hmm. write something that's two pages or, you know, whatever. And that's when I started to, that's the kind of first time that I remember writing and having it coming, having come easily and have and enjoying it. And so I think that's a lot of that carries over to today, but at least now that I've done a lot of writing, I can get excited about writing about a wide variety of things, provided that there's something to learn. Like I love to learn about something and then explain it and try to communicate it. And so now it, it can be a much, much wider range of things. Like I've, I've been writing reviews of like email marketing automation software because it's something that I evaluate myself to run my, my business. And so it's, it's fun to think of a way to communicate these ideas clearly. And it's, a, it's an activity that does help me make money in my business. And so I'm able to motivate myself in part from being pretty good at writing now. Or, you know, I've heard this idea that passion comes from skill. Passion mm -hmm. doesn't come from, isn't this, you know, isolated thing, which I don't necessarily agree with. But I can tell you that when you, when you start to get good at something, then it's easier to 
to do it in other domains, I find. Yeah. I think it's easier to show up if you care. I think it's it's easier to not give up if there's something that's drawing you there because writing is one of those things. Uh, maybe you leaped over the, the hurdle that most people have, which is, I don't know if I put this out there, if it'll be any good. What if no one reads it? What if no one likes it? And you just putting that post maybe was that biggest hurdle overcome. So they're like, oh, I could do that again tomorrow or next week. It was overcome one time, but I mean, I certainly ran into that hurdle thousands of subsequent times and still run into it sometimes today even, but it's one of the the main things that I try to get myself over. I mean, that's why I wrote my latest book, The Heart to Start, which is just that, you know, I, I when I was in Silicon Valley, I heard this this advice so many times, like just get started. And I think that's good advice, but I think that for some people it's harder than for others. And I think that it was very hard for me to get started because I had so much self-doubt. Mm. And so in a way it was me reminding myself and reaffirming the techniques that I use to actually get past that, that resistance to actually put something out there. Right. So let's go back. So your blog took place during what part of your journey? Were you still in Silicon Valley when you did that? Were you thinking about your design career and thinking that this is something I want to pursue? Or how long did it marinate in you before you started to feel more drawn to this whole concept of writing? It marinated a while. So I started it, I was in, you know, I was in Omaha in 2004 when I started it and I did not want to be in Omaha. I wanted to get out. And then roughly a year later, I got a job in Silicon Valley. I got very lucky. I got discovered kind of by this startup founder that that would do trips to Omaha. And so I had a blog and I had put up a, a portfolio of my work there. And I think that that really helped me land that job. It helped me make that escape. So I moved out to Silicon Valley. And then I was pretty fulfilled working at startups for a couple or a few years. And I would, I would write here and there. But I do distinctly remember at my very last job, when I would try to write blog posts on my own blog, I remember distinctly feeling this feeling like, ah, the thoughts that I have. This is, I don't know how to say this in like a non-immodest way, but it was like, oh, the thoughts that I have are, are like too big now, I can't, they don't full fit in a blog post. Like I can feel my brain kind of bursting at the seams and there's something that needs to get out there, but I just need to find the space and the time to explore that and find out what that is. And so I eventually moved to Chicago and rented a two bedroom apartment for the price I was renting a bedroom in the mission right. and just gave myself, you know, a really cold winter to explore what was, what was in my brain three years of that. And uh, then I, I got a book deal for uh, for my first book, Design for Hackers. Yeah, incredible. Let's talk about Design for Hackers, because I think that that's, I think that the, the initial curating your work into something more specific, your blog seemed like you were doing it for you, doing it for an audience. And before you wrote this book, were you collecting emails? Were you growing a list? Was there an audience that you communicated with? Or, or what kind of relationship did you have with your readers before your first book, before you started talking about the heart of the start. I didn't have an email list. And I guess I would look a little bit at, oh, how many RSS subscribers do I have back when that was a thing? And uh, if you're Seth Godin, it still is. Yeah, right. I, I, you know, when, when Google Reader disappeared, that was, that was a sad day. Yeah, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't have an email list. And I guess most of my blog was, I was concentrating a lot on like, I had a couple of posts that were just really big SEO hits for, for certain things. And I would 
turn those into passive revenue streams so I could free myself up to then explore more creatively. And so I wasn't thinking of it as an audience thing. And I actually, I actually still don't think of it that way. I'm, I'm starting to a little bit, but more than anything, it's really just a testing bed for ideas. So I, I think of my work as like cell division, hmm. as mitosis, I think is what it's called. You know, when a cell, when a, an organism grows, the cells divide, you know, a cell gets a certain amount of resources and then it divides off. So Academy.net is always, has always been, continues to be a place where I give myself permission to write about any topic that I want. And then if something really takes off, then I can spin it off into something else. So Design for Hackers is one of those things. I ended up taking the, the design posts that got me the book deal and putting them on the Design for Hackers blog. It's, it divided off into this other cell. And then, you know, in addition to that, I, I'm active on Twitter. I'm, act, I'm very active on Medium. I've got a really good Medium following. And Medium is a place also where it's just, it's process. It is, let's test out this idea. Let's see how it goes. There's actually a, an economist that I recently interviewed on my podcast, Love Your Work. And he, his name is David Gallinson. And I, I'm not sure where I first heard about him, but I know that Malcolm Gladwell talked about him in his, uh, in his podcast. But David Gallinson has this theory that he has been dividing up, you know, great painters by mm-hmm. is that there are the conceptual innovators and there are the experimental innovators. And so he, he has mined auction data and found that there are some painters for whom like their work based upon a number of different factors, the most important work happens when they're young. And then as they get older, their work is less important. But then there's other painters, and Picasso would be an example of that. Picasso you know, invented cubism when he was uh, very young, did a, a lot of different artistic movements in the early 1900s, didn't really, have, didn't really do a lot of work of historic significance, and he lived to be into his 90s, and with the exception of Guernica. Now, then the ex- so Picasso would be a conceptual innovator, and Cezanne who the predecessor to Picasso, would be an experimental innovator. Cezanne, his paintings, as he gets older and older, get more and more valuable. Hmm. And Cezanne was somebody who, the painting itself wasn't a work. It was, it was a part of the process. And he was always searching for something. He was always searching for how to objectively show what he was seeing on a canvas. And so there's these two different styles of creator, the conceptual and the experimental. And these experimental creators, the, like I said, the, the work is the process. Somebody like, say, Andy Warhol is a conceptual innovator. He can come up with an idea and then hire somebody else to execute it because that's what a conceptual, a pure conceptual innovator does. And hmm. everybody's a mix, right? But really learning about David's work and also talking to him on my podcast has really helped me get more comfortable with this idea that I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have a plan, you know, that the, the, the work that I do is the process. It is a process of discovery and I don't really know what comes of it until I do the work. And so that's a lot of the way that I think about, about my writing and and my work. So you talk a lot about it in the, your current book about that there's just art inside of you and there's like, this mindset that we can have, you know, either fixed or it's malleable. 
how much does that play into who you are and were you always a malleable person or do you even believe you are now or what's your perspective about mindset and how how important is that in even looking at the way you present your work to people hmm. yeah i definitely i definitely think i have a growth mindset i don't know if i was always that way i think it's something that's i've cultivated in some ways it's probably something that maybe came from my background in art and design and and I've actually been, now that I think about it, I, I, I do remember, this is something that, I, that I, I look for, and I actually talk about it in the book called The mm-hmm. Pump, which is the, this idea of getting really excited about something, about feeling, about feeling that rush, like kind of the rush that I was feeling when I was reading Pride and Prejudice for the first time, and I could mm-hmm. feel the language re-architecting my brain. I do remember distinctly you know, playing a video game. It was like Evander, Evander Holyfield something or other on <laughs> Sega, and it was like the first game I ever played where you could use points to grow a fighter and you could add stamina and speed and strength. And I remember just getting this rush from that of like, oh, like this is, thing is going to change. It's going to grow. And I was actually talking with a friend about this the other day. And I don't know if it's a thing that is just inherent to kids or if it has anything special about me, but I was definitely obsessed with change. So I collected, I loved to collect caterpillars. And then collect the leaves that they would eat and, you know, look them up in a book and stuff and and raise them into butterflies. I was obsessive about doing that. I did that all the time. I loved Transformers. You know, I loved the, um, these little spongy things you could put in water and they would go from really small to really big. And again, these are all kids toys and there's probably a reason why they're so successful. So maybe it's a kid thing, but I remember those were the things that really excited me. So I've always been excited by growth and change and evolution. So <clears throat> I think that's yeah, that's an interesting question about mindset then, because I guess when I first heard about this this mindset research, you know, Carol Dweck's mindset stuff, like, oh, there's growth mindset or there's fixed mindset. I don't know, something about it like didn't really grab me. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can happen with things that you don't personally struggle with. Like, I think that the same is true for my my book. You know, some people can do the starting and they're like, yeah, just get started. Like, why would you read that book? It's a waste of time because you just get started. But that's not how it worked for me. That's something I struggled with, mm. you know? So I think that the things that we struggle with and the things that we don't struggle with dictate what resonates with us and what doesn't. So I, I think that I, I do have a growth mindset, but it's not something that I think about very mm. much. I, I, you know, somehow it happened for me and I don't, I don't feel like it's something I've struggled with. Maybe I should look at it a little more. but. I definitely feel that way about my work is that I'm okay with, all right, yeah, I'm putting this post out there. It's not that good, but the next one will be better. Uh, I'll put this book out there and, you know, maybe it has a misspelling in it, but that's okay. The next one will be better. There's always more where that came from. And the more that I do, the, the better I'll get. And so that's definitely the way that I approach my work. Yeah. I used to think that having the trouble of being what people would name perfectionism was that the people really wanted to be perfect. And what I realized even just being with my son who who has that nature of not wanting to put it out there is that it's not a perfectionism issue it's an issue of mindset that this that it's okay that he's where he is that he could change he can grow it's an imperfection mindset believing that he'll he's not good enough for us to be the way it is it should be better by now he should be able to produce something more appropriate for what's in his mind he can't articulate what's in his mind onto the page onto the art and i think a lot of would be writers aspiring writers 
are afraid that they can't communicate what they really feel and think onto paper. And the key, I think, is I think you talk about in your book or in your podcast, this the notion of like the uniqueness that they have is what they need. They don't need these perfect moments, perfect language, perfect words. That grows as you kind of tackle it. And that, that's another thing I'm really curious about is when you go to put a post out there, isn't it surprising what resonates and what doesn't with people? It's, it's sometimes not even the thing you think that would make a difference, but it does. I mean, first, I want to say that that was a really interesting idea about um, perfectionism and how it can be associated with growth mindset. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that way. But as far as you know, knowing whether something's going to resonate or not, I mean, I know that there were so many times in the past where I would do something and be like, oh, this is going to be huge. Like this post is going to do so well. And it, it kind of fell flat. And then there might be some things where they took off and I kind of was surprised. I don't feel like I get that super often now. I feel like I have a better sense of it. I think that the surprise can come from I'm sitting down to write the idea and I might be like, oh, this is going to be a great idea that I'm writing about. And it turns out to not be good. Like I can tell, you know, as I'm writing it and when I review it, or there might be something that I'm more resistant to writing about for one reason or another. And then I, then I do it and it turns out like, oh, this is, there's something powerful about this. And uh, I, I, I find more and more, I don't know, I should keep a spreadsheet of my predictions on this because they could totally be fooling myself. <laughs> right. Uh, it, but I do find more and more that, that like I, I can feel it. You know, if it's going to be big, I can, I can kind of feel it. But I go ahead and publish the stuff that's not going to be big anyway. Yeah. You mentioned something that really struck me, which is something about the words kind of change your architecture. There's to something, to some extent, the language in which like Pride and Prejudice started to shape you sort of, sort of in, internally and reaching into old language. And a lot of people don't do that unless they're forced to, but you reached into it. And I know I used to do that with my students when I was a teacher, say, look, we're going to read 12 Years a Slave, the, the 1800s version, and it's going to be hard. And we're going to have to stop <laughs> to look up words. But I want you to hear in the language that the author wrote it so you could understand the depth from which he was writing from. And they looked at me like, oh, are you kidding me? And I, oh, no. I, I always hoped that maybe there would be one kid that would get, well, like you said, I never heard it put that way. Like the, the architecture of the words would really change them or shape them or connect with them. And I, your writing is so beautiful. Like I, I look at your writing and go, he's not just communicating words. He's really creating beautiful structures and the way he, you write is so, I feel very inspiring as well as like, oh, that should be a quote on my wall. That should be, you know, put out there to, to be remembered. Cause I think you have such an intentionality with the words you do choose or how you name it. So I just want to mention that. Cause oh, I think wow. it's really fantastic. Thank you. That's like the best compliment ever. Yeah, it's true. It's, I really find, I'll have to share some of the things that struck me, uh, that really, I was like, wow, that, that's something that should be somewhere like cultivated and said and spread, which I appreciate. Yeah, I had a, yeah, I had a friend once tell me that, uh, or I, there's been a couple different times and that's what, it, that's, that's given me a lot of pride when there's been a couple different times, if I can, if I can be immodest, when a friend was, well, one was a friend who, you know, he's into writing and he just sort of as an aside was like, yeah, your writing really flows. Like it, it flows from this thing to the next or, or somebody uh, said that they read one of my posts and they were like, oh, I, you can, you, you really pull the reader along. And I'm like, that's, yes, yeah. perfect. That's great. Cause that's something that I, I practiced and it, wow. it's become a little more second nature, but it, yeah, it's something I do work at. Yeah. And I like the way 
your work seems to share. Like, this is how I felt like I knew you. So much of your work reflects the people that you listen to, admire, wonder about, whether it be Seth Godin or Stephen Pressfield or, you know, all these people. I was like, oh, you could see the influence that they have because the gentle way you share their, their notions, their thinking, and then you apply your own. It's not like you're just spewing off what they say. You're, you're referencing them in the way that you talk about them or the way that you share an idea that they had. And I think that's really hard to do when you're writing originally, when you're captivating your own audience with your own voice. But I think you do a great job of that. So I want you to, be, to, to understand oh, how much I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting too. I mean, I think that it's something that I've tried to cultivate because it can be very easy to, I don't know, kind of get writer's block over the fact that like, oh, that's kind of been, that's been said before. So-and-so said that, but just go ahead and take it. And, you know, obviously like say that this person mentioned this thing, but, but make it your own and, and allow them to have the influence. I mean, cause you, you do find with a lot of this stuff, especially, you know, I write kind of a creativity, self-help productivity space. And you read enough of these books and you realize that a lot of these a lot of ideas are rehashed um, mm-hmm. without attribution very a lot of times. And a lot of times a person who you think originated the idea is not the originator of an idea. But I, I do try to make it a part of my process. And that's kind of the way that my model works is I, I have my podcast and I talk to people like Seth Godin or, or James Altucher on there, you know, heroes of mine. And then I just try to take take that conversation as an opportunity to learn and to to try to go back over it and review what I learned. And and also when I read books, I, I highlight a lot and I try to review what I highlighted and, and revisit revisit things and say, oh, well, what can I make with, with this idea that I got from there and write a post about that or write a, an, an essay for the podcast about that. And so, yeah, it's really, like I said, a part of the, it's the process. It's not so much a product as it is, as it is a process. Yeah. Oh, I think you do a wonderful job. I want to tell you Let's make the connection to your process since you're talking about sort of what goes on. Let's say you have a notion, I'd like to write this. I think this is something that's calling my name or where do you want, number one, where do you put that idea? Do you have like a a space? Is it a post-it or is it just in your mind? And two, then how do you start to follow the the trail to that idea? Is it, is it, Mm -hmm. what does the process look like for you as a writer? And then let's move into, well, what does your writing habit look like once you start to decide this is what I'm going to do? Hmm. I'm pausing because it's not necessarily that that linear. And I I know that you know you're not you, you don't you don't mean to make it linear, but so I'll start with something that I've been doing this year lately that I really really enjoy, which is that I have a portable word processor, which I've written about mm-hmm. on my blog, and it's basically a forty dollar AlphaSmart Neo, and uh, mm-hmm. it has a little screen on it, it holds four lines of type, and it takes three AA batteries that last for several months. And I keep it next to my bed. Mm-hmm. And so my newest ritual or habit is that first thing in the morning on weekdays, when I wake up, before I get out of bed, I grab a, that uh, word processor and I keep my eyes closed and I have to type a hundred words. Now, it's usually 500 or a thousand or this morning, I think it was 1500. But it is just no filter. I can type whatever I'm thinking. And oftentimes when I find that I'm having difficulty typing something, I realize that, oh, it is because I am thinking something. And for whatever reason, I'm not writing it. And so I allow myself to write it and it's sloppy and it's terrible, but it gives me a chance to exercise the ideas. Now, when I'm done, I just delete it 
Mm. And because more and more I'm finding that I want to be able to write what I write because I know it. And I think that one of the best ways to know something is to write about it. Mm. And so same thing with, you know, say like the book that I'm working on now is I, I have written a couple of drafts of it and they're sitting in Scrivener. And then I have an inbox in Scrivener where I'm, I'm working on, I'm collecting more ideas and stuff. And it's just get up there, free write about this idea and that idea. And then, um, you know, I'll put things in brackets if it's like, oh, I need to look into that more. Or, you know, here's an assumption of mine. I put it in brackets and that way I can later on make it an action item to to research. And and then uh, another thing I'm doing is I'll, I'll then go on mediums. Like maybe I've exercised the thoughts a little bit. Now I go on medium and I type and I type it. And so I'm trying to, you know, I've got the two drafts of the book, but I'm trying to write the third one from scratch. I think I wrote the second one mostly from scratch as well, is I want to know the thing that I'm writing. And the best way to know it is to just keep revisiting it over and over again and throw away what you produced before. <laughs> mm. So that's the way I tend to approach it now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that are going to be like their mind just fell out of their head that you write something that you delete and throw away. A lot of people write something and don't share it or write something and, you know, they call it journaling, but you're writing with the intention to just empty your head to, to produce writing. It's not so, so much to go back and reflect or whatever. You're trying to own what's in your space and to by writing mm. it. Is that what you're saying? In a way, it's, um, I think about just carving neural pathways. Mm. Like the same way that, that Pride and Prejudice was carving new neural pathways for me, I'm trying to make those pathways happen in my brain. And so I'm doing it in the morning when my prefrontal cortex is still asleep and the different regions of my brain can play and, and have crazy ideas. And I just know that by exercising those ideas, neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm -hmm. And so those connections get stronger. And then at the same time, there is something that happens during incubation, you know, between creative sessions or between sessions of trying to solve any sort of problem that you start to forget the bad ideas. And the, the good ones remain. And, and so it's really just trying to exercise the neural pathways so that the connections become strong enough that I can sit down one time and just bang out the prose and it'll sound pretty good. And, and then with another passive polish or so, it'll, it'll, it'll kind of be ready to go. I really love this. When I was teaching young people writing, the biggest mistake I did was listen to other people who taught writing because oh, yeah. what I discovered was, is kids hate writing. But not because they don't have a voice, but because they hate what they're told to write about or how they're told to write about it. And I think they just don't get enough time to write. They're told to do these papers and they dread them and they avoid them and they make it look like writing, except for the ones who like the way that the teachers created it, which is a small percentage. But most of the people are like, I'm just going to do this tonight before and turn it in and just hope for the best. And they don't get a chance to practice writing and engage in it. And like you said, develop neural pathways. But what if you did? What if you just said, we're going to write. We're going to write so fast that you can't think. I find most people who, who write or want to write spend more time thinking than writing. And the problem with that is that's not writing. That's thinking. That's researching. That's <laughs> pondering. But it's not writing. Writing is the act of writing. If you sit down for 20 minutes and you can write 1,200 words and that's all you do every day, that's a good amount of work. That's writing. That's, that's the act. But if you sit down and stare at the screen and look things up and take notes and go back and re rewrite, most people are taught to be editors, not writers. Hmm. not to produce their thinking on a page. They're taught to, to evaluate, cut, decide, is this going to be good enough? And that's the problem that I think a lot of writers have is they have 
they were trained with their left brain instead of with their right brain to think about these complex things, the beliefs, the values they have inside of them. I mean, when you're trying to edit at the same time you're writing, that is so, so painful, especially when you're not an experienced writer because you haven't really practiced writing. It's like, you know, people who go to the gym and they immediately get a trainer and that trainer overtrains them and then they never want to go back again, you know, as opposed to somebody who has a trainer that that helps manage their energy and helps them just just enjoy this session enough that you want to come back to the next session. And I think of writing that way. And one of the, you know, things I'm most proud of that I've developed over the last couple of years is the ability to do really bad writing. (laughs) Permission to suck is one of the, permission to suck is one of the chapters in the book. And, and so to, I think nobody tells people how bad it really looks when someone's first writing. So I'm writing I might start to do a, an outline, but then, oh, this one note on this outline, suddenly I'm writing a ton of prose there. And then I kind of run out of steam on that. And then, you know, I'm just kind of jumping around and trying to surf the contours of my own brain and trusting and knowing that, okay, it's not going to necessarily make sense today. But if I keep on coming back day after day, eventually magic happens. Because hmm. that's the way that creativity happens. It doesn't, you know, creativity is is connecting a lot of disparate elements to one another. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you have to have things programmed into your long-term memory because your long-term memory can hold like limitless things. Your working memory, the thing that you're trying to use as you're trying to connect all these different dots and and, and edit something and and give it structure and, and do research and all these things at the same time, your working memory holds like four things or something. It can't handle it and it gets tired really fast. So I see it as a as like a, a mental energy management thing. And yeah, I agree with, uh, with all the other kids who, who don't like the way that writing is taught. Um, there's a chapter called uh, The Linear Work Distortion, which is about this idea, this myth that creative work happens linearly, that you can just sit down and write an outline and then write a, and then write a paper or something. Like, you can do that. I know the guy who wrote the, the the Facebook movie and then the name escapes me, but he was on uh, Noah Kagan's podcast and he was saying, yeah, I outline an entire book before I write it. Yeah, you can do that after you've written a bunch of books, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I might be able to do it. I might be able to do it myself now. Uh, it wouldn't be the way I would prefer to do it. If you know something, you can write an outline. But if you don't, and if you also are not a very experienced writer, it's just a huge block. It's iterative, it's messy, and you have to let it be like that. And that's something nobody ever told me that. Yeah. It's I had a, to discover it myself. It's a terrible, I mean, honestly, it's like the worst way to write, I think. Unless you're a seasoned writer and it makes sense to you, like you said. But I always tell my writers, like, look, if you think you start with an outline, that's like pouring concrete. You're not going to tear it up if it's wrong. You're like, no, I'm staying in this. This path is already here. But if you if you think of it more like creating, you know, those round discs that you put in your garden, like that you can move around and adjust. It's still a path. And sometimes it's more beautiful if you have control over it. Just let's share what's inside of you. Let's discover this. Like if you become a learner in your process, you talk a lot about this in your book about that this starts with this curiosity. If you wonder deeply into these things and when you don't know, you just go, I, I should know. I want to know. Then your writing becomes this exhilarating place of understanding. I think that most people aren't allowed to, when they're thinking, they're more thinking about the editing. They're not thinking about the deep contemplative things that could come from the act of writing. And I think that's the power that happens. And I think that's why your your prose and the things you write can be so beautiful because you spent time wondering and 
seeking and, and, and having a curious mind. And I think that's rare in a writer. And I think that it shows really strongly in lots of your writing. And I want to encourage people to, to trust that, trust that, uh, you know, that inner voice that calls them into the space that they're, they're standing in. Don't, if you want to be a transactional writer and write content that here, I have content. I'm going to give it to you. Now you have my content. That's fine. I mean, that's more like the Volkswagen, how to fix your, you know, VW 1969 bug. But the book that kind of catapults you into a new space of understanding had to have that kind of feeling for the author as he was writing it. And I think your, your books do that. Oh, well, thank you. You know, I think that there, what you were saying about curiosity, like there's so much shame around curiosity. I'm just starting to discover this. I've had so many people say like, oh, I just have so many interests. Like they're kind of beating themselves up about being curious about a lot of different things because they're worried they're getting off track. They're worried that they need to be obeying and following some sort of structure. And, you know, structure is is helpful. Structure, the industrialization of things has made us very productive. But at the same time, it has taught us ways of doing things that are very incompatible with being creative. Mm-hmm. You know, creativity needs space. Deadlines can help for certain things, but you need a little bit of a little bit of reverie here and there to let your mind wander and make those unexpected connections. And if you find that balance, then that's what I go for. Yeah. One of the things I encourage people to do if they want to write a book is start without writing. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, I want you to use symbols and colors and drawings like you would if you were in kindergarten to express what's in your brain about this stuff. Because if you try to organize it in words first, it doesn't live as words. Words is the last thing it is. It's just your attempt to get what's in you out so other people can get it. But if you start with this like real raw, non-judgment place, the right brain is doing this curious work in the subconscious, then you're not quickly surrendering to the left brain to start trying to create architecture around something that isn't even baked yet. It's not even clear what it is. So I always ask them to start in a very simple place and like, be playful, use crayons. I was like, put down, get away from the computer and just start to explore with what's in your head first, because what you have inside of you is what we want, your depth of understanding, not the knowledge, you know, the content that's there. And I think more and more people could do that. They would have beautiful things to say and their prose would just get better because they would be connecting to these, these visceral things that they have around them. Yeah. I like that a lot. I mean, especially as somebody who came from the visual world, I just loved drawing as a child and studied graphic design and worked as a, as a designer. So I think early on in my days of writing, especially because I was writing a book about design, there would be times where I'd feel like, oh, it's time to, to draw something and that would lead to words. Or there would just be spatial expression, such as you know, putting a whiteboard on the floor and you know writing this little thing over here on the top left and this little thing here on the r- bottom right. And you can't really explain why this belongs here and this belongs here, but there, it's somehow a spatial representation of what's going on in your brain. Now that I have practice and practice writing more, for the first time, my notebook, I'm using every single centimeter of my notebook. It's mm. all just, it's all line after line of writing of <laughs> this, this latest notebook that I've been using this year. But usually there's lots of empty space and there's drawings and, and things like that. But I think that that's a good way to connect with what you want to say. And then as you practice more and more finding the words to say those things, then you just get better at it and you're able to, then you're able to write. (laughs) Right. I think those are all wonderful things. Lastly, I want to talk to you about the heart to start. 
Like the whole idea, the subtitle really struck me, win the inner war and let your art shine. What was, has been your reaction to people that have read your book or commented about it? That, what has it done for you? Because, or for them, because me reading it, I mean, like this is why I referenced Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art, because your book kind of reminded me and inspired me in a very similar way. It's, oh, it's absolutely, absolutely inspired by the things I've learned from reading Stephen Pressfield's works, sir. Yeah. What has struck you about the responses or the things that people have discovered that you didn't see or the things you've heard from them that really make you wonder? I just have to say I was really pleasantly surprised because it was so nerve wracking to put that book out there. You know, I had, it had been six years since, uh, since Design for Hackers came out. And, and I think of myself as a writer. So I, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, this is, this is me encouraging myself to start. Mm. Again, is writing this book. And in doing so, I just decided to write the book that came easily to me, mm-hmm. that felt natural, especially after a couple of years of trying to do the traditionally published route and writing these book proposals and feeling like I've got to be like, oh, someone's a Stanford professor and this CEO of whatever, McCall, like, these, these things that actually aren't important to me at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I decided like, let's make something that, feels natural and good and get it out there because <laughs> right. it's been a long time. And so when it got out there, I was kind of, there's this story of uh, Jackson Pollock standing in front of a painting and he asked his wife, is this a painting? Hmm. And she didn't want to, he didn't want to know like, is this a good painting? He wanted to know if this is a painting. You, I mean, if you've seen Jackson Pollock's work, you can imagine the doubt that he must have had doing something so groundbreaking of just, it's just splattered paint and like, Nobody had ever seen anything like that. So you're kind of putting that in the world. Now, I'm not trying to say that my, my, my book is some sort of groundbreaking abstract expressionist thing, but it was personal. It was the book that felt good to me. You know, it was shorter and shorter chapters and it was the concepts that were important to me and the things that I learned in my own experiences and the things that I learned from people on my podcast. And I put that out there and it's just been such a relief <laughs> yeah. to know that, that it's a book that people is really, really resonating with people. And I guess the biggest surprise has been the level of specificity in the Amazon reviews. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know how it is when it's like somebody writes an Amazon review because they like your work or they're a friend or, or they're just kind of going through the motions or something, but people are giving these very specific things about like, oh, I was very depressed and feeling like I wasn't getting to express myself creatively. And I came across David's work and it has helped me. Mm-hmm. And so that's been amazing. And so I think what's resonating with people is this idea of, you know, there's a chapter in there called, maybe it's the first chapter, there is art inside you. And when I write that, I'm like a little cringing because I'm like, that's kind of cheesy or something. But I don't know where that comes from in me. But it seems like it really does connect with people too, because they're not, I think that we're not encouraged to realize that, is yeah. that we all have something inside of us that only we can do each of us and that's what i would like for more people to find and that is what i hope to help people with with my work is to to find that and to find the courage to to follow that and to see what happens right so in, and, you, and i know that i said this is the last thing now i'm going backwards on my work yeah <laughs> that's fine uh, but because this the design for hackers because you mentioned something that triggered this conversation was traditionally published sort of your first book out of the gate for the most part. Oh, yeah. And then then you went back to self-publishing. Talk to us briefly about 
how that publishing sound of deal happened and then how did you settle on you mentioned a little bit about the resistance that occurred now working with a publisher and what that felt like but how did it transition into i'm going to do this my on my own so help people because there's people out there thinking you know you i really want to be a, a published author because i think that's important and i'm sure yeah. a lot of but then talk about what what that's like and because i want people to understand how important your book i think really does a great job hard to start talking about this very thing in very subtle ways but Maybe talk to us about your process of getting your first book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it kind of got to where I just, honestly, it kind of got to where I didn't feel like I had a choice but to self-publish. So the first book was traditionally published. What happened was I was trying to get a talk at South by Southwest. I wrote a popular blog post to get votes for my talk. That blog post got popular. And then I got an email for a book deal. I actually, I got I got two emails within the, the course of a week or so of, putting these articles out there. And so it happened, I, I got, I feel very lucky. It happened very fast. I remember talking to Tim Ferriss's agent, because I was looking for agents at first. I remember talking to him on the phone. <laughs> he talked to me, Stephen Hanselman. Mm. And I remember him just being like, wow, this is happening really fast. But I didn't really realize at the time. I'm like, yeah, of course I can write a book. Are you kidding me? And so I did it. And it was really a terrible... <laughs> It was a torturous experience, you know, and I think that my art, what I make has often been a salve for, for not being happy, mm. you know, where like, oh, my brother's beating me up. I'm going to hide in my room and, and draw or something like that. And, you know, I think that continued up until up to design for hackers where that my work was an escape. And so to finally get validated and to get to put this book out in the world and then to have that book be really well received. It was a top 20 on Amazon on launch day was really an incredible experience that just totally changed my life. And in part of that experience, I started to think like, you know, that was really a miserable experience bringing this book into the world because I spent six months just locked in my apartment by myself in a one of the worst winters in Chicago history. And, uh, and after the smoke cleared, one, I wanted to figure out how to make that creative work happen using neuroscience and behavioral science and stuff. And that's kind of the book that I'm, I'm working on next. But there was also this realization that like, I can't go on like that. I can't feel that way about my work. I mean, mm. especially now that my life is, is so much better and that my, my creative gift that I thought that I had in, in me that caused me to move away from Silicon Valley to Chicago to that that cold apartment in Ukrainian village to explore and figure out like what's in my head what is this you know now that that was out and the world had validated it and and accepted it i had to find a way to find joy in my work mm -hmm. and to to feel healthy about it and to and to love it i guess that's why i have a podcast love your work yeah and so I had to do some of that. But then there was also, you know, it's been a long process. You know, there was also the pressure of I had a successful book and now the next one's got to be more successful. The next one's got to be, you know, if the, if the first one is top 20 on Amazon, well, the next one's got to be a New York Times bestseller. Mm -hmm. And not even thinking about like, what does that even mean to be a New York Times bestseller? Why would I even want that? What is required to, to do that? And the more that I explored that, the more I realized like, wow, that's really not me at all. It kind of reminds me of like, I think in high school, like I used to sit at the cool kids table at lunch and, you know, they accepted me, but they didn't invite me to their parties and stuff. And like, I wasn't a cool kid, <laughs> but I still like 
wanted to be. And it's it's taken me this long in my life to realize that I don't want to be a cool kid. Mm. <laughs> I want to be me. And I should have done that a long time ago. And so, yeah, I don't want to be in the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, if that were to happen by some fluke, then that would be fine. But that's not what I'm going for. I want to do, I guess I want to practice what I preach is like, find the thing that only I can do. Mm. Find the thing that is uniquely me and put that out there and find the people who, for whom that resonates. And so that was, I had to really let go of a lot of, um, kind of what I wanted to accomplish, what I thought success was and what I thought accomplishing things was. And that took years. It took many years. And so now, now I, I have it. Like I, I, I feel fine with putting what I think is good out there. And um, unfortunately, it's being received well. I don't know how I would feel if people hated it, <laughs> but it's just so much more satisfying. I feel like it, it's better work and, and it's actually easier. Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to tell you why I asked this question. It's mainly because I'm scared to be vulnerable myself, but I'm going to be. So, you know, my first book I wrote in a very short period of time, and it really was for me. It had no other intention about it, to be honest. But what I, what it did for me was stop being a hypocrite to my kids saying, you could do anything you want, you know, just try hard. And, you know, just a bunch of teacher garbage, to be honest, but true things, but just not resonating with me because I wasn't doing it. But the moment I went to a conference and I was talking to, Dan Rome, who wrote Back of the Napkin, the New York Times bestselling author. And he said, Hey, what are you doing? What are you working on? I said, Actually, I'm, I'm working on a book idea. He's like, What is it? I said, Well, I've, for the last 22 years, I've asked this question to my students in, you know, inner city LA and suburban Texas and elite schools abroad. What makes a good teacher great? And I've collected 26,000 responses to this question. And I'm writing a book to share what I've learned through that process. And he's like, that's a fascinating book. It um, is. And I didn't actually think about it that way, to be honest. I just wondered what I was going to do with the, all these quotes. I'm not sure why I started collecting them. It's the one thing I still have. I'm a nomad, so I don't have a lot. But he said, this could be a, a best-selling book, a New York Times best-selling book. You, you need to talk to my agent. And at that moment, I've been frozen. And it's been two year, two and a half years since he told me that. I have no problem writing. I have no problem with the content. But because of that pressure he added, I've been stuck with that book. Oh, wow. And I realize that I have one fear that I might show up for myself and be a New York Times bestseller. What, what will that mean? And I, the other day I discovered, I was like, I don't, I don't want to return to the teaching space. What if this tries to catapult me back to schools? I want to influence education and learning, but I don't want to return to a classroom. And the other thing was his agent, same agent as Austin Cleon, who wrote Steal Like an Artist and like, I started to feel this anxiety. Ted Weinstein. Ted, yes. And so he, he connected me. He's like, here, you know, reach out to Ted Weinstein. Here's how you do a proposal. I started working on the proposal. I started to become overwhelmed by the process of something that was really supposed to be great. <laughs> and I mean, talk about the, the pain of writing a, an outline before writing a paper, writing a proposal before writing a book. It's just Oh my gosh. So I wrote, yeah, I wrote the proposal and I sent it off to, to get help you know, to get a, some coaching. And I really, I, I found out that I was trying to create something for somebody else. And that's when yeah. I stopped. And it was October of 2016 that I left some moments to myself. And what I did instead was stop the proposal. And I did a TED talk about it instead to see, did I really know this? Did I really think this would make a difference? And the truth is it does. 
I just have been living in my head about it. And what you're sharing helps me because I know I could surrender and not even worry about it. Like, I don't have to write it for anybody. I don't have to write it for a proposal or worry about if they like it. This is important to me. It's important to the world. And I just need to get out of my head and finish it and be done. Because it's, I would say it's halfway, halfway there, which, you know, with the book, that's like the Japanese proverb when you're halfway there or 90% done, you're only halfway there. I feel like kind of that way with this book. Yeah. You know, Nirial really inspired me to self-publish, though it took, you know, maybe a year after talking to him to, for it to actually work. And he was just saying to me, like, just write this stuff on a blog and give the book away for free. And if it resonates with people and takes off, you'll be fine. You know, he did Hooked. He gave that away for free and then got a book deal after that. And it's I've seen it in airports. And I think that a lot of traditional publishing people, you got to take someone what they say with a grain of salt because of the interests that they have. They will try to scare you out of self-publishing and act like it's career suicide if you self-publish something because now you've made it impossible for you, you to get a book deal and to get things distributed farther, which is probably true to a certain extent. Like if your book is mildly popular, then probably nobody wants to publish it then. But if your book is a juggernaut, then you get even more money right? <laughs> because, because they already know it sells. They want a sure bet. Right. And that's better than, um, you know, than taking a gamble on something that they haven't really seen out in, in the world yet. And yeah. I guess for myself, I could see how your book could be a very large market book. Like I was saying, when writing the proposal on that stuff, I just found myself over and over again, realizing that more and more, you've got to make a, a book with really wide market appeal. And that's not me. I'm like the, you know, I like the indie music. I like the indie films. I like the weird niche stuff. And uh, you can do the weird niche stuff now. Yeah. And sometimes the weird niche stuff takes off, but traditional publishers want a sure bet. And the yeah. sure bet is here's the Stanford professor who's done this research for all this time and or this here's the CEO of this company or this consultant that has consulted with all these five, Fortune 500 companies. And that's all fine. Those things are not interesting to me in the least. Yeah. And I don't like reading those books. Right. <laughs> so... Yeah, you know, just do my own. And that's the thing. You know, Charlie Hone, do you know Charlie Hone? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I yeah. was just on his podcast. Oh, yeah. That's great. Author. Yeah. Dear friend, he's like, Azul, you know, you don't need in this at all. I'm like, I know. He's like, why do you think you need it? I go, I don't know, Charlie. It's just in my head that it's a positive seed, but it grew into like it rotted in my head. And that's not a good thing. But the incredible thing is my talk wasn't great. Charlie was there with me when I gave this talk. And there was, it has, I don't publicize it. I don't share it. It's, like on a regular basis or do any heavy marketing for this, but it's half a million views in a year. Wow. So people, it obviously, it resonates with people. It obviously, it's about something that people care about because people can understand the idea of learning in kids. So it's not that. You've helped me today. I know we weren't, you're here to interview, I'm here to interview you and you're helping me. I appreciate that. That's great. If I can add a, a, another story from my, you know, from my experience, if, if you're not too far over no, time for yourself. So I, I recently published this short read. It's called How to Write a Book. And it came from, I was writing a, a blog post and the blog post ended up being 7,000 words. And I was like, hey, you know, this could be a short book. And one of the things that came out of my conversation with Seth Godin on my podcast was, you know, if I were somebody's just starting out, I would publish a book a week. I would concentrate on Kindle 
and thinking like a book a week. But I realized in launching the heart to start, there is a lot of this is happening in fiction. There's all these short books then that people are just cranking out. And one leads into the one leads into the next. They have box sets and series, and and part of why a book is what most people think of as a book. You know, 250 pages, basically something that could be a blog post expanded to 250 pages. Part of the reason that is there's certain economics that shape that, and that's traditional publishing economics, like that the spine has to be wide because it's going to be on a shelf and it has to stand out. It doesn't matter how long your book is. You could put up a five, you could seriously put up a 500 word book. It would still have an Amazon page. It would still show up in search results. It would still show up in customers also bought in all these this, these real estate places. And so I've just really been thinking, rethinking what a book is. And so I, I published that 7,000 word book, kind of thinking like I don't know if this is going to work, but it's going really well. Yeah. And it's really interesting, and it, it has even further made me feel comfortable with, yeah, I can put work out there and it's not the end of the world. Like one of the things I worried about was like, oh, I'll put a book out. If I put a book out and it's not popular, my career is over. Yeah. Yeah. Total BS. Yeah. I can just keep out. I can just keep putting books out. I can delete a book if I want. Like you can do anything when you are self-publishing and, and that's, that's, that's been such a powerful thing to learn. And I'm so glad to finally be on the other side of that wall of resistance that was holding me back for so long. That's great. I appreciate that. I appreciate your time. You know, let people know how they connect with you. Of course, they can go to your Amazon page and buy the myriad of wonderful books you have. And if they want to write a book, there's a book there that 7,000 words. What's the name of that book? How to Write a Book. I won't say the uh, subtitle because I used all 200 characters. (laughs) (laughs) That's Brilliant. As an experiment. I mean, yeah, if a book, if, if a wide spine shows up on a, a bookshelf, then I was thinking, well, maybe a, a really long title with a lot of keywords that people use to search for books is the equivalent of having a thick book on a bookshelf. So that experiment seems to be working pretty well. So That's awesome. And how do people connect with you? How do, where do you want them to find you? Where's the place that you live that you care about where people can show up and connect with you? I'm really active on uh, Twitter at Cadavy. I'm really active on Medium at Cadavy. Cadavy.net is my blog. I also have a podcast. It's called Love Your Work. There's a ton of great interviews on there. And then I also share what I'm learning along the way. Great. And that's everywhere. Yeah. That's one thing I love about your work is I always feel like I'm learning alongside of you. David, we could talk probably for another hour, but (laughs) I really appreciate you. I appreciate the connection we have, the help you've given me even through this podcast. But also the work you share with the world. Thank you so much. Thank you, Azul. Thank you so much for listening to the Born to Write podcast. Please subscribe to this so you get this in your inbox all the time. And if you've been thinking about wanting to write a book, now's the time to really commit to it. I want you to know that you're totally able and capable of writing a book with much ease and faster than you think because there's a process, process to write a book. I want you to go over to coachazul.com and learn a little bit how you can write a book. Maybe you can start with one of our free challenges or learn to work with me to help you get your book out of you. Find one of our retreats or our workshops. And again, thank you so much for being a part of the Born to Write community.